Hey, what's up everyone? My name is Jess Garcia and I'm the worship pastor here at New Abbey NoHo and I'm so happy you're with us. Today our scripture is going to be based on Mark 15, 16 through 47. And the question for today is, what's one of the hardest things you've gone through? Take a moment, press pause, and when you're ready, press play and enjoy the message by our pastor Darren McKenna. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to, well, I feel like I'm John Oliver starting the show today. Uh, welcome to The Void, aka my bedroom. Um, no, with the recent spike in cases, we just decided we wanted to be safer um, and just kind of maybe we'll lower our, lower our production value for just a little bit in the interest of safety and health. Um, so here we are in my bedroom uh, sitting down and it's going to be it's going to be great. Uh, so thank you for bearing with us. But, you know, I I'm really excited about today's passage. I'm really excited about where we are in the story of Jesus. Um, and, you know, it's that awkward moment where we say that I'm apparently very excited about the death of Jesus. Um, but we all know this. This is such a central piece of the Jesus story and of the Christian tradition. And that's, uh, and it's something that we here so often that often we miss the nuances of the story. And you know how I've loved walking you through um, the book of Mark and noting how Mark really was a masterful writer. He's writing this socio-political commentary on the life of Jesus. And now we're getting to the final act, the final moment uh, in the story. And Honestly, like while the, the death is so obviously central theologically, uh, it's also just the how Mark brings this story together. And we're going to see so much just in this, this one chapter uh, is really incredible. So I'm just going to be kind of looking through this story and kind of pointing out because honestly, it's just so rich. I could spend um, an entire sermon on just verses in this passage. Uh, and we're not going to do that, so I'm going to try to get through all of this very quickly. Um, so bear with me, and I'm excited for the conversation today, because we need to talk about death in 2020, uh, during a pandemic, during a year where there were a lot of dreams that were lost, and a lot of dreams that felt like they died. We need to be able to talk about death. So we're going to do that today. So got my uh, Bible here, uh, and we're I'm just going to start looking, uh, reading through this with us, and kind of talking about the story and the way it unfolds. I know we just read it as a community today, uh, um, but we start the story with um, the torture of Jesus, and we just have to like recognize that this is um, though torture happened frequently in that day and with uh, political um, prisoners. This was a uniquely horrible torture. You know, we can see in the kind of the story as it moves on that Jesus was having a hard time walking, that they, they really did a number on Jesus's body. And we even see later that he dies sooner than they expected on the cross, right? So he, what they did to Jesus's body in that moment was really horrible. Um, it was really painful uh, and it was very cruel. Um, but, you know, we'll kind of move on from that piece of the story because that's not as, as interesting to look at as what happens next. Because they start, they bring Jesus uh, from the place of torture and they bring them what we know as the Via Dolorosa, right? The, um, 
the pathway to the cross that Jesus took. And uh, it's, it's really interesting. So we have to, to note a few things that this would not have necessarily been very unique. Um, the idea of parading around your political opponent that you're about to es- execute is a show of force. It's telling people in Jerusalem, Jerus- Jerusalem, excuse me, hey, don't try this. Don't do what Jesus did. You see what happens to our political opponents. We parade them through the streets as an example to you. This is Rome showing its strong arm, and it's an imperial punishment. As as we're going to see over and over again, what ultimately killed Jesus, at least in the eyes of the Roman executioners in that time, was uh, Jesus's um, imperial threat, the, the threat that he posed to Rome and that the entire way that they operated in the leaders. Um, but what's interesting is it says a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. So as we said, Jesus, he was uh, in really bad shape, and they had to force someone to carry the cross for him. But there's some irony here, because you see, Simon, Simon Peter, was Jesus' first disciple that Jesus passed by using that same language. Um, and they, and he's a countryman, right? In the same Simon. So this is a kind of an irony that the star, the story of Jesus started with a disciple named Simon. Uh, and that disciple was now deserted and abandoned him as Jesus predicted. And now it's also still going to end with a Simon who is called in from the countryside, from the rural areas. And then Jesus gets to uh, the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. So a very ominous place for Jesus to be uh, crucified at. Uh, And they they crucify him and they divide up his clothes. And and why is that an important detail? Well, uh, you see, Mark alludes three times to Psalm 22, right? He's deeply connecting Jesus to the Jewish tradition and the laments found in Psalm 22. And so they divided up his clothes almost in accordance with the prophecies, in accordance uh, with the scriptures, right? Um, And then Jesus is crucified and they put the charge against this over his head, uh, the king of the Jews. Again, this was imperial strength and might. They're saying, don't try this. Don't be a political revolutionary. Don't be the kind of person uh, who will end up here. And he's hung out. He's hung in between uh, two bandits, right? Two. Uh, there weren't necessarily the kind of bandit that had a strategy to try to take over Rome, but were more likely people who just stirred up trouble with the Roman guards, right? Um, and by the end, even those two in this account were even mocking Jesus for their charge of him being the king of the Jews. Um, you know, this was, again, we have to come back to, this was a really brutal ending. And we even see the way that people are responding to the crucifixion of Jesus, that this was a brutal ending. Uh, we see there, it's almost like they want to see this punishment end. Right, we see in here where it says, hey, listen, he's calling Elijah. Um, and he said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And he says, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this, let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so we may see and believe. There, there's some subtext there that we have to, we have to recognize that 
Jesus really caused a stir and people didn't know what to believe about him. He had a large group of followers that are no longer with him in this moment. Um, but everybody was confronted with Jesus's teachings. Everybody was confronted with the life of Jesus and knew that something was going on there. Um, and there's almost a little subtext of like, maybe if he actually did do these things, I too would become a believer, right? It's almost like, prove us wrong, Jesus, in this moment. Otherwise, your punishment is deserved. Um, and as we know, Jesus doesn't necessarily prove them wrong in the triumphal way that these uh, people who are watching uh, would want him to. And that story for what the, his triumph looks like comes later. But we have to recognize that Jesus was not coming to save his life in, in the way that they would want him to prove that he can save life. Jesus' intentions were to create life in this new kingdom order, this social order that is inclusive and does justice to every single person. Um, so we also get to the second of the laments here. There are the second of the allusions to Psalm 22 because there are people just passing by and it says they shake their heads at him and saying, you're going to uh, destroy the temple and build it up in three days. And that also is an allusion to the language used in Psalm 22, the way that the crowds treated him. And why is this important? Well, because it, it was, it's ironic because those crowds for so long had been with him. We've talked about this, the Greek word achas, the people who were around Jesus all the time that gave his support. Um, you know, and now I'm even remembering uh, that I forgot to mention earlier what's the other irony of the story is how Jesus was paraded out with Simon. It's a direct in direct opposition to the way that Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphantly. Instead of triumphantly with the crowds being hailed as some sort of savior, he's leaving Jerusalem with the Roman guard as someone who is convicted of death and the crowds had deserted him and mostly his disciples had deserted him. Right? There's so much irony here. Mark is closing up all of these storylines, all of these little bits that have happened in Jesus's life, in honestly a really kind of depressing way. He's like, this is, this is failure. It's kind of what you get from this Mark story. And where else do we see that? Well, we, we, uh, we see that at the, uh, when the darkness comes over the land for three hours, we see this allusion to the Exodus text. Um, we, and then immediately after that, Jesus screams out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but I said it confidently, so you probably think I did. Um, but that just means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Another allusion to Psalm 22, all laments, right? We're seeing over and over and over and over again, the irony of Jesus's story that was filled with so much hope ending in a truly horrific way. And then Jesus finally dies on the cross. And the next thing that happens is the, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. And it's almost to say it's, it feels like an allusion to that passage about uh, an old garment not being able to be patched up, right? The old garment being this uh, curtain in the temple that would divide the Holy of Holies. This was an upending of the social order, right? Jesus' death, and, and we know this from what happens next in the story, but it truly did kind of fully upend the way that people perceived or way that 
uh, that faith tradition that came out of the Jesus movement, the Christian tradition, um, how they perceived where God was and how people interact with God. Um, and so we, there's another thing for us to notice in this passage that I think is really important for us to, to talk about, because I think this gets misinterpreted pretty, uh, pretty often. Um, there are three kind of eyewitness accounts that the scripture talks about to Jesus's death and what happens afterwards in the burial. Um, and the first one is the Roman centurion, which frequently is kind of cast to this person who finally um, confesses and repents. And I don't really see the story like that. And the commentary I'm working with, Ched Myers doesn't see it like that. I think this man is representative of Rome. Um, and basically, again, that Roman power they had over it. You see, this centurion uh, names Jesus and surely this man is the son of God. Well, who are the only other people who name Jesus in the book of Mark after uh, Mark 1.1? Uh, well, it's the demons, right? It's the demons in the Gerasene demoniac. It's, um, there's another de uh, demonic story where they named Jesus as the son of God. And this is the third time that Jesus is named as a son of God, except for this time, Jesus isn't able to silence the man because Jesus is dead. You see, I think this man actually represents uh, Rome being over and against Jesus and having the final say. This is saying that Rome won when this man, the evil one in this case, when this man names Jesus as the son of God. It's not a discipleship story. This man goes back to report to his captain. And, and we know from the way that Jesus even treated the scribes that uh, they're like, oh, you, you, you're very close to the kingdom of God. Uh, but because they still worked in the scribal system, he was like, you're, not, you're still not a part of it, right? And this man to kind of stay in his uh, Roman post wouldn't make sense that this would, Mark would include this as a discipleship story. Uh, just is not consistent with the book of Mark. But then the second kind of uh, named person uh, is Joseph. Uh, I, I think they name him as Joseph of, of Arimathea in this book. That uh, might be, yeah, they do. Um, and again, this is a man from the council and oftentimes People cast him as a secret disciple, as if somehow, and like when it says a part of the council, we're, we're really led to believe that this man was a part of the Sanhedrin that just convicted Jesus and sent him uh, to uh, Pilate to end up being executed. And can we really believe that someone is a part of that group and complicit with that group was really secretly following Jesus this whole time? It just doesn't really track, but it seems like this man is representing the way that the Sanhedrin or the Jewish establishment, that the religious establishment at that time had clinched their hold on Jesus and they had the final say. You see, the way that he buried Jesus, it was in a hurry and there's all sorts of talk about maybe it was because Sabbath is coming. Um, but at the same time, if he had honor and respect for Jesus, he would have gone through the traditional burial practices. Um, he would have uh, put in the spices or whatever that looked like. And it's something that the text is clearly saying that that didn't happen with this burial because the women had to do that later. Um, so this is a hurried burial. It seems that it was more trying to get him out of sight to stop there, stop it from uh, the people from protesting. Right. This was more a man who is working in line with the Sanhedrin 
uh, working in line with the, uh, the religious officials who really wanted to see Jesus killed and just trying to make the best decisions. And it would make sense that at the very end of Jesus' death, we see the final kind of clinch of Rome and the final clinch of the religious system uh, coming in and subverting and showing their ownership of Jesus in the way that they were the ones that were able to execute him. But then we have the women, the true disciples. Again, this is not a small plot line in the book of Mark. We've seen this over and over again. That whereas the men, the 12 disciples, the apostles consistently didn't get it, women were always stepping up as the ones who truly understood what Jesus was saying about the way of the cross. And there are three women there and they're named. And I don't think their names are, I'm glad that they're named because not all the women are named, but I don't think that's as important as much as it is that it's three women. It's replacing the inner three that Mark talked about. And we see the culmination of Jesus' statement, the last shall be first. These women who uh, were with Jesus at his last breaths are the ones that will be there first for the resurrection of Jesus. It becomes a very literal, something that's so ideological to us, it becomes a very literal circumstance with these women. So this is, this is the death of Jesus. This is a story we've heard so many times. This is in... Hopefully, I've illuminated some ways that this uh, really kind of closes up the book of Mark in a really, uh, it's seemingly a very negative light. Um, and I, I want us to spend some time thinking about uh, the idea of death and pain and of rejection. Because, see, this is something that we all deal with. None of us are immune uh, from the, the effects of death in our lives. Um, and, and I love that about tradition, uh, Christian tradition, because it's, it's very subversive in that it paints death not only as something that happens, but something that is central and paradoxically so. Like death is in, in some ways good, which is really hard for us to say and hold that very well as humans. This is what the contemplative tradition tries to do all the time, which we're going to talk about a little bit more later. Um, But we don't want a tradition, or I don't want a tradition that doesn't mirror our actual lives and what actually happens. And I'm very grateful for this tradition that has forced me to look at death my entire life and look at the complicated nature of it that sometimes death offers something to me and sometimes death is painful and most of the time it's both, right? Um, And I want to name some things. A lot of us, you know, we have a younger community right now. Maybe a lot of us haven't experienced uh, literal death in our lives and people who we're close to. Um, And that's okay. I actually really want us to be a kind of community that recognizes that life is a continuous cycle of life and death. And we have little deaths all the time. Whether that's a death in our ego, whether it's a death of an idea or of a chapter in our lives or pain, like all of these little deaths count. And I want us to believe, know that and believe that because all of those moments in our lives that are difficult deserve to be grieved, deserve to be mourned. Um, deserve to have the space that they need to heal and to process and to move on. Um, But something I also recognize is that young people often, we we don't really 
know how to talk about literal death very well. And it can be very isolating for people who have experienced it at a very intimate way. And, and we're especially, we're in 2020. Death is unfortunately more of a reality uh, this year for many of us than it's been in a very long time, maybe our entire lives. Uh, it certainly is for the whole, the country as a whole. And, and I really want us to be a kind of people who are able to talk about the like literal death well and begin to have some handholds for what those conversations can look like and other ways of understanding what death is and isn't and what it does and how it impacts our lives. Um, and I was doing some research this week uh, on death and how do we have those conversations well and you know, what it came down to is I, I started to recognize uh, as I was listening to uh, rich traditions that have done so much work around death and how to greet death um, in your old age or whenever you do, I, I recognize that I'm a young person who has not experienced so much death in my life. And, and that's, just, that's just who I am. There's not a problem. Um, but I recognize that I don't bring a wealth of wisdom and experience in this conversation. So I was doing some research and I actually came upon a video by a woman named Cynthia who works at the Center for Action and Contemplation. Um, she talks about death and it's earlier on this year, kind of near to the beginning of coronavirus. Um, and she's seasoned, she's experienced death in her life. Um, intimate death in her life, and I'm assuming way more than she even let on, but talks about uh, how she experiences and thinks about death these days. And I thought it would be good for our community to hear from somebody with that experience, uh, to engage this conversation well, as we're in the story where we recognize that death is uh, just a part of the life of Jesus and not even the end of the life of Jesus. We'll talk about next week. Um, but that death is actually just the beginning of a different way of being. And what she would say is death is the beginning of being fully alive um, and your true self. And there, there's quite a lot there. And she's a contemplative thinker, and I encourage you to listen to her more and look her up, read her books. Um, so we're going to listen to a, watch a short video with her and allow her to speak into our community a little bit uh, from her perspective. And we'll, when she's finished speaking, we're going to come back into our small groups and we're going to answer the question, what's something that feels like death to you in your life these days? Or maybe there's literal death that you need to process. Um, how are you holding space for that? How are you grieving, mourning? How are you caring for yourself and the other people involved? I want us to be able to acknowledge some things. So if for you, you have, you're not experiencing any literal death, um, maybe there's something in your life that you would actually benefit if you just named it, that this is a little death in me. There's a part of me that because of 2020, because of the pandemic, because of this circumstance or that circumstance, there's a part of me that feels like it is dying. Um, but maybe you can care for yourself better when you name that. So we're going to watch this video, come back into our groups. And again, the question is, what is something that feels like death in your life these days? And how can you hold space for it? Look forward to the conversations. Thank you for joining us. Follow us on Instagram at New Abbey NoHo. And if you're interested in giving to New Abbey NoHo, feel free to head over to www.newabbey.org 
slash generosity. Be sure to scroll down to the North Hollywood Fund. Thank you, and have a blessed week.